Well, for those of you uh, that are joining us for the first time, I'll, I'll give you a little picture of where we've been looking at on Sunday mornings for the past group of weeks. We've been looking at the book of Joel, and the book of Joel is a, a small prophetic book in the Old Testament that I think frequently gets skipped, it gets looked over, but it's a fascinating book, uh, particularly if you uh, enjoy looking at books of prophecy, if you look at, uh, uh, enjoy looking at a different content like this that reveals to us ahead of time some of the things that the Lord likes to do and plans to do. Now, the book of Joel was written in a context probably about 800 B.C., somewhere in that range, although people kind of debate when it was written. And the background of what was going on uh, at the time was there was a large locust plague that had come and had, it had invaded the southern kingdom of Israel, the, the, the nation of Judah. And this locust plague had come through and it had ravaged everything. So picture, you know, right now, I mean, this time of year we look out and we see a lot of green still. We see uh, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, different things that are being harvested right now. Imagine if you and your family were counting on those harvests and then all of a sudden a plague of locusts came through and devoured everything. How are you going to feed your family? How are you going to uh, raise money to be able to take care of some of your other needs? This was a, a group of people that went from having abundance to all of a sudden having nothing as the land was completely ravaged. And the Lord speaks through the prophet Joel to tell the people of Judah, yes, this is bad, but it's a picture of something that's going to come in the future that's actually going to be worse. And it's not just going to affect this area locally. It's something that's going to impact the entire world. And so it's one of those prophetic portions of Scripture where the Lord actually prepares our hearts to understand things, not just in a historical context, but in a future context as well. And so we've been talking about the righteousness of God, the fact that He invites us to be people who repent, uh, the, peop- uh, the fact that He restores His people. These are things that we see in the book of Joel. And specifically today, we've made it now to chapter 3. And again, it's not a long book, so chapter 3, this is the final chapter of the book, uh, although we're going to take three weeks to look at chapter 3. But in this portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, and we're just looking at the first eight verses of Joel chapter 3, it talks about when the Lord takes care of those who were treated poorly. Now, in just a moment, we'll take a look at, uh, well, let's look at it now. Let me read it for us now. Joel chapter 3, starting with verse 1. And then we'll pray together. And this is what it says in that passage. It says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away. For the Lord 
has spoken. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to carve out some time to look at it together right now. And Lord, we recognize that we could be doing just about anything right now, but by your grace, you've allowed us to be here in this context under the teaching of your word. And likewise, Lord, even as we look around our room today, we recognize that many of us have different backgrounds, many of us have different life experiences, all sorts of things that that have led us up to this point, and yet we experience the unifying factor of the privilege that it is to be able to gather together in this place under the teaching of your word, listening to the things that you communicated through the prophet Joel. And so, Lord, we pray that as we spend this time together that we would be edified and that you would be glorified, and we pray that our minds and our hearts would be open to the truth that you communicated in these passages hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and we're grateful for the privilege to be able to look at them now. We commit this time to your care, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So this doesn't get to happen as often as I wish it did, um, but from time to time, usually maybe one night per week, our family schedule will line up just right. And it's gotten really tricky now that our kids have gotten older uh, for this to really happen. It used to be very easy. Our schedules kind of lined up really nicely and there wasn't any problem, but now it's a little different. But when we have an evening where, where nobody has to be at a meeting or nobody has work or nobody has an event or something that they're at, and all six of us are in the house at the same exact time, there's a variety of things that we like to do. Sometimes we'll play board games. Sometimes we'll sit down and read the scriptures together or read a book out loud together. Other times we'll sit down and watch something on TV. And we had a moment like this this past week where we had the opportunity to just sit down together and we decided to watch something on TV. And so then the next debate is, what are we going to watch together? And we decided on a police drama. So we watched a police drama together, one of the dramas that, that we've watched uh, you know, many times together. And uh, so we watched an episode that none of us had seen, and we were sitting down, and the premise of the episode was this, and maybe you'll, you'll kind of identify with this to some degree. The premise of the episode was that one of the main characters had just received a job promotion that had a lot more authority and a lot more leadership, and he had to exercise that leadership toward those that were under his oversight in the episode. And at first, they didn't like the decision that he had made, and so they were kind of bristling against it. But then as the episode went on, he took some time and he sat them down and he explained why he made the decision that they made, and one of the other characters made a comment and said, I appreciate that you did this, and now I see the wisdom of your decision. I didn't like it at first, but what I really like now is the fact that you decided to explain that to us. Your predecessors, those who occupied that position in the past, never did something like that toward us, and you showed kindness toward us instead of treating us despairingly. And as I was watching that, obviously I realized that it's just acting, right? It's acting. You know, this is, this is people acting, but they're portraying something that I think that we could easily identify with because I think that all of us have probably been in a context where it was refreshing to be treated well by someone or where it was refreshing to be treated by somebody with respect because in many other contexts of life we find ourselves in, we're treated poorly. From time to time, you've probably been treated poorly by people that you love. From time to time, you've been treated poorly, I'm sure, just in, in you know, common interactions with people you don't even know, just, just out in society. Sometimes you've probably been treated poorly in the midst of a job scenario or a job context. And when you're treated poorly, when you're in the midst of being treated poorly, don't you just find yourself eagerly waiting for someone who has the authority to do something about it to do it? 
Don't you find yourself in a spot where you're saying, all right, you can fix this. You can do something about this. I shouldn't be treated poorly like this, but I'm waiting for you to act. Do you ever find yourself in a spot like that? Well, in the macro sense, as we look at humanity, we can look at humanity and say, all right, there are lots of times when people on this earth in big ways and in small ways have been treated poorly, and I think the yearning of our heart is for someone to intervene. And when you look at the verses that we just read, That's what we see the Lord doing on behalf of the people of Judah. We see Him intervening on their behalf, and He takes care of those who were treated poorly. And in Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, we see the Lord demonstrate how He goes about this and what He does. And that's what we're going to spend our time this morning taking a look at. But one of the things that this portion of Scripture brings out is the fact that the Lord restores the fortunes of the people of Judah who were treated poorly. That's one of the ways that he cares for those who were treated poorly. He restores their fortunes. Let me reread verse 1 for us. There it says this, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Now I'm going to pause there and we're going to continue with that in just a few moments. But here you have events described. And the events described in this portion of Joel's book, they speak about future events. They speak about things happening in the future. And so here in this prophetic account, we're being told of days yet to come. And we've noticed over the course of our study of the book of Joel, he keeps making reference to something that he's calling the day of the Lord. And when you read that statement over and over again, you keep saying to yourself probably, what does that mean? What is the day of the Lord that he's talking about? And as Scripture kind of unpacks that idea, as we look at various Scriptures that give clarity to what Joel's talking about here, what we come to realize is that this is a general way to describe the time when God is going to judge sin, when he's going to establish the earthly reign of Christ, and when he's going to restore creation. And that's a season that will begin with tribulation and conflict but it will end with glory and peace. And so this is the time that Joel is referring to in these verses. Now, historically, and I like reading through history, and I like thinking through history, and I know some of you do as well, and historically, when you look at God's promises, when you look throughout Scripture, and even, even when you get into the early chapters of the book of Genesis and then the middle chapters and the later chapters, you can see historically that the Lord has promised to bless Israel, and Judah. And through them, the Lord has likewise promised to bless the entire world. And when you look through the narrative of Scripture as it develops, a little bit at a time, you see from humble beginnings, the Lord raising up the Jewish people, and then making them numerous, and then giving them land, and then protecting their heritage, and then sending them prophets, and then sending His Son to be born through the tribe of Judah and then promising great blessings to them in Christ. But historically, historically, look at how the nations have treated the Jewish people. You know, in just about every major segment of history, you can find examples of the Jewish people being oppressed. You could read through historical accounts that take place thousands of years ago. You could read through historical accounts that take place hundreds of years ago. Shamefully, you could even read through historical accounts that take place dozens of years ago, and the same thing keeps happening. People set themselves against the Jewish people with irrational hatred and with, with, I would call it like a selfish disdain. 
And when I consider the reasons that that sort of thing happens, I'm convinced that the primary reason that keeps happening is spiritual. Because I'm convinced that, that people are being used, by, used as pawns by the spiritual forces of Satan to resent the favor that God has been showing to His people. But then you look at a portion of Scripture like this, how it opens up, how the, how the Lord talks about this idea of restoring the fortunes of the people of Judah. You, you see here in this portion of Scripture that the Lord sees the, oppressions of, the oppression that, that His people are enduring, and He does something about it. He doesn't just notice it. He does something about it. We're told in this passage that the day will come when the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem will be restored. Now think about that statement for just a second. What do you think that means when Scripture's talking about these things? The idea that the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem will be restored. 2,800 years ago, this is something that the, the Lord inspired the prophet Joel to communicate. And it's being spoken of here in this portion of Scripture, and we're looking at it, we're thinking about it today. What does that mean? Well, I think that there's, a, there's multiple levels on which the Lord will fulfill this. I think there's a physical and a spiritual component to this promise. Meaning, I'm convinced that the Lord's actually going to fulfill that promise in a material sense. But I'm also convinced that the Lord's going to, to fulfill that promise in the spiritual sense. By blessing the, the people of Judah with the riches of His grace. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, as someone who looks at the Old Testament and looks at the Old Testament and considers this the flow of a continuing narrative, one of the ways, the big way that I believe that this is going to be fulfilled is the fact that you have the Father sending His Son, Jesus Christ, through the tribe of Judah at the time of His first coming. And so you see this spiritually being fulfilled, this process being fulfilled. And then Scripture tells us that Christ is going to return. And there's going to be a great harvest of faith among the people of Judah as they recognize Christ as their long-promised Messiah. And so here in verse 1, you see the Lord promising, I will restore their fortunes. Then look at verses 2 and 3. When you look at verses, verses 2 and 3, you can see that the Lord calls the oppressors of the people of Judah to account. In verses 2 and 3, it says this, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people. And look at some of these ways in which the people have been treated. It, scripture here says, And have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Now, let's pause here for just a moment. Um, when I was growing up, I was mischievous. And, and some of you would say, You haven't moved far past that, John. And that's probably true. But I was thinking about this this week. I had a couple things that kind of reminded me of this. Uh, I, I was kind of mischievous growing up. And my, my thing was, I always wanted to see if I could outsmart my parents. And sometimes I could outsmart them, and sometimes I couldn't. Uh, my mother worked uh, 11 to 7 at night uh, for most of my teenage years. She worked 11 to 7 at night at a, at a basically a, uh, like a nursing home. And um, 
so she worked that late shift, and she would always come in tired. Now, this is terrible, okay? I'm just going to admit that this is terrible. I hope I still have my job afterward, but, uh, but I noticed her pattern. She'd return home a little bit after 7, right as we were getting ready to leave for school, and I noticed that one of the first things that she would do would run the water in the sink in the kitchen for something, whether she was just getting a glass of water to drink or doing something like that. And uh, it dawned on me at one point, I thought, boy, this would be so funny if I took a rubber band, put it around the sprayer, and then she's going to come into the house, and she's going to turn that water on, and then she's going to get soaked, and I don't even need to set an alarm because mom, I'm certain, will scream. And so I I had this in mind. I thought, all right, I'm doing this. I'm going to do this. And so I did it, and I went to bed snickering and just waiting, waiting, and then she comes into the house in the morning and like clockwork turns on the sink full blast, and it starts spraying her. And the best part about it was when it happened, she screamed my sister's name. She's like, Tammy! That's all I heard. Tammy! And I thought, this is great. I got away with this, and I didn't even get the blame. But one of the things that I I would dread sometimes in my uh, mischief is if I'd get caught, and the blame did come upon me, and if I would hear my father's voice address this. And so I, sometimes I'd get away with stuff, and sometimes I wouldn't get away with it. But when I didn't get away with it, I would hear, so in my family context, they all referred to me as Johnny. And uh, I would hear, Johnny, come here. So just put yourself in that spot. You know, you're, you're a young child, or maybe way too old to be hearing this. Whatever age, right? We'll just assume young, all right? even though probably 17, but still. Um, and I would hear, if I would hear it, my, my dad is a, a, a deep, you know, like bassy voice, and I just hear, Johnny, come here. And I would think, all right, <laughs> I'm dead. I'm glad the last thing I did was fun, but I know that I'm dead. And I heard that many times, and it's kind of ironic now because as the parent of four mischief makers who have inherited the genetics of their father in many respects, I find myself in that context saying, so-and-so, come here. Come here. They're getting craftier, though, because they've gotten older. But you look at this portion of Scripture, and it's telling us what? Like, what's it saying here when it's describing these events here? It's telling us that there's going to come a day when the Lord is going to call, so He's going to call out, He's going to call those who have oppressed His people to give an account. He's going to call them and say, come here. In this moment, come here. And Joel speaks of it this way, he speaks of the nations being brought down to the valley of Jehoshaphat to be be judged by God saying the nations are going to be brought there and they are going to be judged by God. They are going to give an account. The oppressors of the people of Judah aren't going to get away with it. They're going to give an account. And by the way, this is not the only portion of Scripture that describes this taking place. There are many other portions of Scripture, whether you're in the Old Testament, whether you're looking in the, the, the words of the prophet Isaiah, the words of the prophet Ezekiel, it's described there as well. Or if you fast forward to the New Testament and look at the book of Revelation as the Apostle John is speaking of these things. I'll give you an example from some of the Apostle John's prophecies in Revelation 11, verse 15 down to verse 18. This is what it says there. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So you see, the nations raged, but ultimately there's going to be a day when people are going to give an account to the Lord. And here you have this, this prophecy describing the day when the destroyers of the earth, those that, that, just, that set themselves against the Lord, those that set themselves against God, God's people, are ultimately going to give this account and experience this, this destruction that they have tried to, uh, uh, you know, just press down on the people of God with. Now, when you look at prophecies like this, when you look at what John says in the book of Revelation, when you look at what Joel says in the book of Joel, I have to say that those can be intimidating portions of Scripture to read, even if you don't think they apply to you. Even if you don't consider yourself, you know, part of the, you know, like the outside group, the nations that, that have oppressed God's people, even if you consider yourself one of God's people, and I certainly do consider myself one of God's people, but when you read portions of Scripture like this, I, I have like a, almost like a, a, a reverential respect for the power of God that's going to be displayed upon this creation, but I'm also grateful that the Lord is not going to let injustice prevail. Because when you look at how Joel describes the things that, as the Lord gives him these words, right? When he describes what has been happening to the people of Judah, he describes adults and children being sold for for material pleasures. So a young boy being sold for the services of a prostitute. Or a young girl being sold so that somebody could just get something to get drunk with. He's saying, like, that's the value of a human life in that context to these oppressors. That they would just sell a young child or sell, you know, sell a young boy, sell a young girl just for the material pleasures of this earth and that they would have no problem in their conscience dehumanizing these people. And it's kind of interesting when you look at a portion of scripture like this and it's one thing to read it in theory, but then you realize that Joel's describing the fact that the people, actual real people, have actually endured that. I mean, could you imagine if that was part of your life? That for some people, that was what they actually experienced. That they had to go through this stuff. And here you we're reminded that, that the Lord sees all of this going on. And I find it comforting to know that we have a God that sees this all, and at the perfect time, will righteously respond. And I don't know about you, but I know that sometimes I find myself kind of wanting to speed up God's agenda. Do you ever want to just kind of speed Him up a little bit and say, Lord, all right, I know that you've been waiting to ultimately deal with these things, but maybe how about today? Maybe today could be the day where you ultimately deal with these things. So even while I'm tempted to to try and ask God to speed up that agenda, I'm grateful that when we look at a portion of Scripture like this and when we look at the totality of God's Word, that we can trust God to respond in the perfect moment, in the perfect manner, at the perfect time. We will all give an account of our lives to the Lord, and He is going to hold those who have oppressed His people accountable. 
Joel is stressing that in this portion of Scripture. Something else that we could see how the Lord takes care of those who have been treated poorly, He takes note of those who have worked against not only them, but those that are working against Him. Look at what it tells us in verses 4 and 5 of Joel chapter 3. He responds to Tyre and Sidon here, who have ultimately been working against his people. But he says, What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? You're paying me back. I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily, for you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. Let me pause there for just a second, because it's clear that the Lord's taking note of those who have worked against him. You don't have to answer this question out loud, but I do want you to answer it in your own mind. Do you have an enemies list? Do you have an enemies list? Just think about that for just a second. Meaning, do you keep a mental tally or even a written tally of those who have hurt you, or those who have lied to you, or those who have betrayed you, or those who have worked against you? Whatever category you want to put that in. Do you have an enemies list that you're kind of holding on to in your mind or in your heart? Um, And by the way, I'll say this. I think it's more common to have an enemies list than to not have an enemies list. I think more people keep tally and keep track of those who have hurt them or worked against them than there are those who respond differently. Um, I don't know. uh, We're mentioning history a little bit today. I don't know if... uh, if you're familiar with the fact that President Richard Nixon, it was found out, kept an enemies list. And he would kind of nurture his thoughts on that. So could you imagine that? Like, what, what do you think that would do to your mind and do to your heart? To keep a tally of everybody that had ever done you wrong and to look at that and think about, like, think wicked thoughts toward those people or, you know, try and figure out a way that maybe someday you could get them back to... Like, what do you think that would actually do to your mind or to your heart if that's the way that you went through life, just kind of feeding that and stoking that? When I think about Nixon doing that, I think that is, that's a very unhealthy thing to do, isn't it? To just take, to keep track like that of everyone that's ever done you wrong and then think of a way that you could get revenge. Well, if you have a mental enemies list, or even if you have a written enemies list, I want to encourage you to do something with it. I want, you, I want to encourage you to either throw it away or transform it into something better. And what I mean by that is this. You can turn your enemies list into a prayer list. Because here's the truth. The longer you live on this earth, the more you're going to realize that there are people that are going to do you wrong. There are people that are going to hurt you. Because people tend to act selfishly. And when people act selfishly, what do we do? We hurt each other. And here's the sad thing. We've hurt other people. It's not just other people that have hurt us. We have hurt other people. And so sometimes it's easy to hold on to that hurt. And yet what does Scripture encourage us to do time and time again? It encourages us to be people who forgive. It encourages us to be people who don't hold on to our resentments and things of that nature. So turn your enemies list into a prayer list. i got to tell you, one of the things that absolutely helps my heart heal when I'm feeling slighted, when I'm feeling hurt, when I'm feeling bashed or whatever it may be, is if I take the time to, and sometimes I have to force myself to do this, when I force myself to pray for God's intervention on whomever's behalf, or when I pray that God would bless those that have sought to hurt me. 
We need to pray for those that at one time we've considered our enemies because here's the secret that sometimes we forget. We don't really have enemies. Now, you may think you have enemies, but you, you, you don't have other human enemies. You may even have people in your life who live like they're your enemies because they're making the same mistake too and thinking that they have enemies. But you don't have enemies. I don't have enemies, at least on the human scale. Every person you have ever met, every person I have ever met, every person that has ever hurt you, every, every person that's ever hurt me, is in the same exact boat that you're in. Meaning, we are all people who make mistakes. We are all sinners in desperate need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. We all come from the same two people, Adam and Eve. And we all struggle with unrighteousness. We're all in the same boat. So the person that you've been tempted to think of as your enemy is really somebody that's in the same boat you're in. A sinner who needs to be rescued. Someone who's rebelled against God who needs to be reconciled to God. But now you look at a portion of Scripture like we just read from Joel chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, and you can see that God, on the other hand, does have a list of those who set themselves against Him as real enemies, and only He is justified to ultimately judge unrighteousness because only He is perfectly righteous. So when He speaks here of, of people and nations that have worked against Him, He is shown to be correct when he mentions that he remembers their unrighteousness and that he continues to hold it against them. Because he's righteous. If I'm holding someone's unrighteousness against me, against them, that's a little bit hypocritical because I'm also unrighteous. I have also hurt other people. I have also sinned against other people. So when someone sins against me, the best thing I can do for them is to pray for them because it's good for them and it's also good for my own heart. But I'm in the same exact boat they're in. God, however, is not. He is perfectly righteous and is perfectly just when He judges sin. And in this portion of Scripture, He talks about the fact that He's going to hold nations like the people of Tyre and like the people of Sidon who worked against His people, who worked against the people of Judah. He's going to hold them to account. He's going to take note of those who worked against Him. And when I look at a portion of Scripture like this, also knowing that I have sinned against a holy God, and that you have sinned against a holy God. And so I look at something like this and I think, okay, technically, technically, on the merits, we deserve to be counted among the people of Tyre and Sidon. Is that not uncomfortable for you to think about that? That technically, in our own unrighteousness, we deserve to be counted among the people of Tyre and Sidon. How would you like to have to face God, face to face, which by the way we will, how would you like to have to face God and have that still counted against you? How would you like to have to face God and say, all right, Lord, I see in the book of prophecy that you, you communicate in the book of Joel that those who worked against you are counted among the people of Tyre and Sidon. They're treated in this way. How would you like to stand before God and have to give that kind of an account? Aren't you glad that the Lord gives us another option? the option for pardon, the option to be forgiven, the option to have the slate completely wiped clean, the option to stand before Him not clothed in unrighteousness, but to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and welcomed into the family of God forever. I love what Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19, it says this. And consider this in a personal way. It says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. Let me pause on the word reconciled. Do you know what that word literally means? It means to take someone who is distant, or in this context, it means to take someone who is living as an enemy of God and bring them near as the family of God. To take one who is distant and bring them near. To take one who is under wrath and bring them under grace. We were distant from God. We've now been brought near. So again, it says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us. He brought us near. He reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the ministry He's entrusted to us as well. A ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So here's the thing. If you're grateful that your trespasses are not being held against you, what does the Scripture encourage us to do? To be people who make that message known. We've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation that we have the privilege to be the beneficiaries of. So the question is, we're looking at this before we look at this last section together, that we should take in a very personal way, but it's this. Have we been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ like 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is encouraging us to be? Have we experienced that reconciliation? Have we accepted the pardon for sin that Christ generously and graciously makes available to us? Or are we selecting to proudly and stubbornly enter into eternity as an unpardoned enemy of God like the people of Tyre and Sidon? Is that how we want to enter into eternity, strutting around like we know our stuff, and saying, you know what? Give me your best shot, God. Let's see what you do. Proudly and stubbornly just saying, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to enter into eternity thumbing my nose at my Creator. The other day I was driving right in the center of town. And uh, when you're down here at the center of town, so you know at the four corners there where you have two gas stations, pizza place, uh, a park, it's a little bit of a tricky corner. Please notice the lines that are painted on the road. They are there for our benefit. But not everybody notices the lines that are painted on those roads. And in fact, the other day, as I was at one corner, I happened to notice at another corner, there was a large truck trying to turn and make the corner, and he would have been able to make that corner if not for a car that decided, you know what, I know this line tells me to stop way back here so that big vehicles trying to make this corner can make this corner, but I do my own thing. And so that car pulled two car lengths up into that space that's supposed to be reserved for people to make turns and wouldn't budge. And a big truck came and needed to make the turn. And it jammed everything up. Because that person was proud and they were stubborn. And they said, you know what, these rules might apply to everybody else, but they don't apply to me. So I'm going to be the one in this intersection that everybody knows is wrong. But I'm going to live in my own world right now. And I'm going to live like I'm right. And that line doesn't apply to me. And I get to cross it. And I get to be here. And so that large truck, what they ended up having to do, and I think there's still tire marks from them doing this, to make the corner, 
They had to go up on the sidewalk and then navigate, not hitting some of the metal posts and things in, of that nature that are there. But it's a large truck, you know, the double wheels on the back of, of it, and it's trying to go over the areas where you have the, the, the handicap cutouts and things like that that are in the, the sidewalk, and it's trying to, like, wave its way over that. And I see the driver looking, the driver of the truck, looking at the driver of the car that's crossed that line. He's looking at him, and he's like, what are you doing? And the driver of the car is just doing his own thing. It's like, just living my life, you know. It's all about me. And I thought, this is unbelievable. Like, I can't imagine just sitting in that car. But the ironic thing is, that's exactly what we've done. Every single one of us. At some point or another, if you've come to the spot where you've accept the par- accepted the pardon that Christ has offered you, that means that somewhere along the way, God had to pop your pride bubble. Right? You just had to pop that bubble and say, you know what? You're fully yourself. You are absolutely fully yourself. You think that this is, is all about you, and I'm telling you, all you're doing is looking at the line saying, I alone can justify myself crossing this, and I'll do whatever I want, and I care nothing about how it impacts others, nor do I care that it's an offense to my Creator. And the Lord says, listen, here's the deal. You don't want to come into this spot of judgment where, where we all come before the Lord and, and give an account for our life with that on your record. And he says, I'm willing to pardon you. If you trust in my son Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty that your sin deserved, he paid it for you so you can be pardoned. Do you want the pardon? Or do you reject the pardon? That's the offer that he makes to us. Plenty of people reject that pardon and choose to live in their own pride, like the people of Tyre and Sidon that are described here. But one last thing that this portion of Scripture brings up, and it's something that we should know, and let me even say this before we read it, don't be like Tyre and Sidon. If it's pride that's keeping you from accepting the pardon that's available to you in Jesus Christ, ask the Lord to help you get past that pride, and accept the gift of grace that He's offering you. It's a gift he paid dearly for on your behalf. And when you look at verses 6 through 8 here, as the section that we're looking at today finishes up, we see here that he stirs up those who were downcast. It says in verse 6, You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and daughters and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. It's interesting, and I I love the promises of God that we see in this passage of Scripture. So even though the people of Judah and Jerusalem, it says, were removed from their own borders and treated with contempt, the Lord promises to one day stir them up and grant them His favor, And we're told here that the Lord stirs up the downcast. And He promises to do this for Judah, but I'm grateful that He can do that for us as well. Over the past few months, I've been watching, uh, really over the past year and a half it's been, a very good long-term friend of our family, a good friend of, of mine and my wife's, Go through, she's going through one of the worst trials that she's ever had to go through, and she's trying to navigate all sorts of responsibilities, and I won't air all her trials here in specifics, but I'll just say this, there's someone we know um, that we've known for 
many years now. That This year probably, I think she would say, has probably been the hardest year of her life. And when you're going through a trial like that, there's a couple ways you can respond. You can take that trial and you can internalize it and just stay in that downcast spot and just remain there. And I see people handle trials like that where they just choose to embrace their depression in the sense that they just say, this is how I will feel forever. Or you can choose to do something different. And she decided, you know what, I'm not going to stay in this spot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let myself feel the pain, but I'm also going to do something with this. And we could watch as the Lord was bolstering her up, as she trusted that the Lord had a purpose for her trials. And we watched over the, this past year as the Lord has been blessing her in a variety of ways. It's not like she doesn't experience pain. It's not like she doesn't experience sorrow. But she's also approaching this with the understanding that the Lord must have a purpose for this. And she's starting to see some of the good outcomes that the Lord is bringing into her life through the trials that she's been enduring. And I was thinking about that this week and looking at this passage as it tells us that the Lord's going to take the downcast, those that were downcast, the people of Judah, and stir them up. He's going to stir them up that they're not going to remain downcast forever. You know, this portion of, of, of God's Word reminds us that the Lord takes care of those who were treated poorly. And it's very clear when we look at this that He has a plan to do this for the people of Judah. But are we also willing to trust that He would care enough for us, you and I specifically, to show us the same level of fatherly compassion? What's God showing us in a portion of Scripture like this? He's showing us His perfect justice, His perfect grace, His perfect mercy, and His perfect compassion. He's looking at you and me, and through the example of other people, He's trying to convince us that this is His nature. And that's what He offers to us, His perfect compassion, His perfect grace, His perfect mercy, His perfect pardon. And He stirs up those who are downcast. So as we finish up, let me just say this as we finish. I don't know where your heart is at right now. I don't know what sort of things you wrestle with. I don't know if you're on the side of things where pride is kind of the dominant perspective in your mind. I've certainly walked that path multiple times in my life. It never worked out for me. I don't know if you're at a spot where you feel just really beaten up by a bunch of things that maybe came your way all at the same time. You didn't really feel like they were... You're just kind of, you didn't see them coming. You didn't really expect that these things were going to come to pass, but here they are and you're dealing with it. What I want you to remember as we look at this portion of Scripture is the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy that's shown to us in Jesus Christ, and the fatherly compassion of God that He joyfully extends to His children. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word and for the privilege that You give to us as we look at a portion of Scripture like this. And Lord, we know that as we go through life in this world, that it's very much the experience that we, that we endure and that we face where very easily, sometimes for little reasons, sometimes for big reasons, be treated poorly. And it could be very easy for us to kind of sulk in that. It could be very easy for us to just Look at that and say, all right, I guess this is the way it is, and, and now woe is me, and I just need to stay in my depressive state forever. And then we look at a portion of Scripture like this where you remind us that your eye is on your children. 
And Lord, we're convinced that when you make promises in your word, you, you fulfill these things in the perfect way and at the perfect time. And Lord, it's fascinating to see these promises that were given to the people of Judah. And as believers in your Son, Jesus Christ, it's fascinating in particular for us when we consider that, that you sent Christ through the tribe of Judah. What a blessing to be able to see the ways in which the whole world has been blessed through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that wherever our hearts may be right now at present, we pray that You would help us to become people who understand the blessing that it is to experience the pardon that we can receive through Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, You wouldn't have warned us of these things. You wouldn't have told us of these things if it was the ultimate desire of Your heart that we come into Your presence someday under the wrath that nations like Tyre and Sidon will be under when they come before You. I believe that part of the reason why You warn us about these things is to stir us up a little bit so we recognize that we have a better option. We have the option to experience forgiveness and pardon through Your Son, Jesus Christ, who already paid for the sin that we committed. We are in the same boat that the people of Tyre and Sidon were in. We're in the same boat that every person we've ever met is in. And so, Lord, we pray that You'd help us not to be people who just look at life and think that somehow this is all about us. We pray that we would recognize that life is about giving You glory and accepting the grace that You offer. So, Lord, we pray that You would accomplish that purpose in our minds and in our hearts and that today would be the day that we walk with You through faith in Your Son. And that You'd help us to recognize that Your eye is upon us. You have not forgotten us. And You are present with us even now. Lord, we're grateful for Your goodness and we're grateful for Your blessings and we're grateful for these reminders from Your Word this morning. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.